Ashley again, back with Michelle for another episode of Mentor Chat. This time, we were very excited to be able to talk with Brenda Jimenez, CEO of Mentor New York, one of our affiliate partners. Brenda has been an amazing leader and voice in the mentoring movement, pushing us all to act and make mentoring more equitable and accessible for young people. While we probably could have picked her brain for hours, we knew she had important work to get back to, so we focused on a few big things. You'll hear us talk with Brenda about language, access, and the racial equity framework that she and her team developed that's become a model for other affiliates and the movement. We hope you enjoy the conversation as much as we did. Also, a quick note. As you're listening, you'll probably notice a few audio issues at various points during the interview. We all know how technology can be sometimes, so we really appreciate your understanding and bearing with us. And now, enjoy the episode. So hi, Brenda. It's nice to see you again. Thanks for joining us for this little discussion. And I was wondering to get us started, if you would tell the listeners a little bit about yourself, the New York affiliate, and just give a brief intro. Thank you so much for having me today. My name is Brenda Jimenez. I'm the CEO of Mentor New York. My background is in organizational development and management, and I have been in youth development over 25 years of my career. And within that, in some type of aspect, it's always had mentoring infused in the way in which delivery happens. And for the last six years, I've been at Mentor New York, Director of Operations and Growth Strategies. Um, and since December 2019 as the CEO. And a lot of our work is focused on taking mentoring to scale within New York State. And I think our value and our vision statement really encompasses what we do pretty well. And it's to foster mentoring cultures and mentoring relationships wherever young people live, learn, work, and play. And that's my commitment. And with a portfolio of close to about 1,300 programs that access our resources and use our services, we reach close to 90,000 young people across the state. You mentioned that you have been with Mentor New York for six years, and then more recently, the CEO. So you said 2019, which would have been at the start of the pandemic, in the middle of the pandemic. At what point did you become CEO? Yeah, I started December 2019 and March 12th of 2020, we host our mentoring conference in person in the midst of sort of this happening. And by the end of the day, they were essentially shutting down most of the country, if not most definitely New York State. Um, so I would say three months into the job, I was dealing with the global crisis everyone was dealing with. So in relative scale, things changed very, very quickly. Every thought, plan, aspiration that I had was put to the test, essentially. With the challenge comes real opportunities, and it allowed for us to really put our feet to the ground, really step into the mission, really step into the vision and really strengthen, leverage, and expand what we considered were the power brokers for young people in the community. What would you say you did to meet the critical needs of the young people that you serve? So I would say that the first and the most important thing for me was, are my people okay? Can we be safe? Can we do this work without proximity? And we had you know, the systems in place, thank goodness, to be able to turnkey that 
literally on a Friday afternoon and Monday morning start the journey. I think the second thing for us was to realize very quickly that if everyone was gonna go into this virtual space, including students, we already understood certain things to be true. We knew there was a Wi-Fi gap. We knew that there was a technology gap. We knew that um, things were deteriorating, especially in New York, which was the epicenter of COVID when this started. It deteriorated very quickly, right? Cases were high very quickly. Deaths were happening very quickly. And we knew that, you know, children were at the center of it and that our mentoring programs were essential. That had us call and rally the troops very quickly, right? Reach out to our programs. What do you need? How do you need it? And I would say that the first, you know, five or six days is just you're reacting to the environment as it comes to you, right? So you keep kicking the can down the line a couple of weeks. And what you start to realize is that the need is becoming greater and greater. And so one of the things that I had to do with the team was sort of slow the reactionary down. It was this constant um, process of looking at the environment, scanning it, analyzing it, and producing something that responded to it in real time. And it was about having the conversation of, we're going to do this for you. We're going to adjust. What do you need from us now? How do we keep you moving in the direction that you need to move in to impact the same young people that you were going to impact? And so being a thought partner in those shifts for leaders, for programs was really critical. But the most impactful thing that could have ever happened in my career was to watch people who care for our children, right? My children personally, but also the children across New York State step up in these heroic and amazing ways. And in doing so, how that really supported and validated parents and families in a real and unique way. And so when we started to talk about our frontline workers, very quickly for me, it became real that our mentoring programs, our youth development practitioners were frontline for our young people. And they were no um, less heroic or special than any other person saving lives. And I think till this day, that's very true. And for us in New York, I would have coffee hours, you know, months into the pandemic, into the summer, where, you know, I was talking to staff that had lost multiple family members or multiple staff members. Um, so they were also navigating their own grief and mental health while trying to be support systems to young people. And I think that's where my team was exceptional in being a support a lifeline, a thought partner in strategizing so that, you know, programs could do the work that they were so passionate about. Because I think no one goes into um, youth development work for the sake of doing it. There is a love for young people. There is a love for the development of that young person to thrive. And in crisis, that just almost exasperates for those individuals, right? Um, so that was the gift. But it wasn't easy. We had some things in place that allowed it to be turnkey. And my advice to any leader uh, faced in a crisis is 
scan your environment, use your talent to respond to the environment, analyze, 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 and pivot. And to the extent that you trust your talent, that you create systems that are nimble enough, you'll be able to, to do that with some level of certainty, even in the midst of uncertainty. Just being another affiliate in the network, it's pretty clear that you have a strong team. I know that we've seen all of the work that you all have been doing and the way that you all have responded to everything. I know the COVID-19 pandemic wasn't the only thing that people have had to cope with during this time with the public occurrences of police brutality, the murder of George Floyd. I mean, unfortunately, we know these things have been going on for years. They're not new, but it felt like this was a moment when that fight for racial equity and justice, I guess it had more energy and a lot of commitment to it. You all at Mentor New York developed the racial equity framework. I know that you all put a lot of thought and effort into it. So I was hoping that you would be able to tell us a little bit more about what that framework means, um, how it's impacted your work, how it came about, and the importance of it. Yeah, thanks for that question. I think in the midst of all this, right, the the thing that became very clear was you couldn't you couldn't run away from it, right? It was there. Like you said, it's always been there, but now it was there for everyone to see. I think as a as a woman of color, as a leader of color in this movement, it's been no surprise to me, and it's not a new reality that in many ways there are um, racialized practices within our movement, right? And that we experience racism within this movement. And I started to very quickly ask myself, if I'm going to sit in the seat, what am I supposed to do? What, what is my role in this? And so the first thing I did was start convening our African-American leaders within the New York State movement to have a conversation about what, what is it that this movement can do via my leadership and our sort of network to start to shift um, the reality. And so I listened. I listened a lot about what was missing or what people knew to be true, affirmations, confirmations of what I knew to be true. And then there was the reality that within, you know, 24 hours of the news cycle around George Floyd's murder occurs, I have hundreds of emails from different executives asking me, how do I have conversations with our young people about what just happened? How do I talk to the Black parents in my program? How do I talk to Black young men in my group, in my, you know, community? And so it was a really big concern. And the first step we did was host a wellness webinar with two DEI experts that I know within uh, New York to have a conversation about what were the first steps because people needed that. And as I convened our leaders, I started to realize that people have good intentions and they think they're doing things, but they don't know where to start, what to do. How do we create a more anti-racist organization? How do we become more inclusive? How do I create cultures of belonging? And they were all valid questions. And when you're in these systems, right, it becomes very difficult because you actually start to adhere to behaviors that actually can be marginalizing even when you don't intend to. So I started to go to the core of it and the racial equity framework became this space where I said, okay, New York mentoring movement, Here's what we can do. This is the part you can control and you can start delving into. And really at the heart of it is understanding that if we didn't elevate Black youth voices, 
we weren't going to be able to do this work differently. And as I said that, there was some pushback. And so I had to go talk to the Latino community and the Asian community and the Native American community in New York and say, are you offended if I put out a racial equity framework that says we have to elevate Black youth boys? And you know, it was really clear that if one community isn't free, no community can be free. And if we can't, you know, find a way to resolve what was happening to Black youth, it was going to continue to permeate in Brown, Asian, and Native communities, right? And so once I got that green line, I knew that had to be the center pillar of our racial equity framework. The second piece I thought that was really important and has really been at the heart of my work has been the business aspect, the system aspect of nonprofits. That if you don't create systems and processes and policies and cultures of inclusion and belonging, this becomes really difficult, right? Because it permeates them into your program. So the framework at the core for a program leader and practitioner is about looking at your board, about looking at your policy and procedures. How are you hiring people? How are you talking to the community? What are the words you're using in your marketing? Does it marginalize the very people you're trying to serve? And so all those questions that were coming up, we were like, these are the areas you have to address with some level of courage. And then the last piece came around what happens in the program when we're interacting with young people. And I think that we have a lot of conversations in and around what we want to do to fix young people, most especially Black and Brown and marginalized immigrant youth, almost as if they had to be fixed, right? And so the mindset of that needs to shift. Every young person comes with brilliance. It's only a matter of time that you figure out how to tap into it. Are we in tuned enough to tap into it? And do we create spaces of joy? Because my goodness, young people have so many curriculums and character building and skill set building and soft skills. And we talk about all these words. And no one talks about the most fundamental thing that happens in childhood, joy, happiness and joy. And everybody reminisces about it, right? If they talk about the 40s and the 50s and the 60s and the 70s, you hear of a simpler time where your parents sent you out to play and you came back at six o'clock at night for dinner. But all of a sudden now with this new generation, we need to fix them and give them character and solve them. And for me, it was like, are we missing the most important tenor of being relational with young people, which is about joy. And so with all the intentionality that we're putting forth in this movement to really have impact, we had missed this critical part of the relationship, which was straight up fun and joy. And can we make our spaces where young people convene and have mentoring relationships become their space of joy of wellness, of mindfulness. Because we know that things that you aspire to as an adult to have, work-life balance, happiness, aspirations, ambition, they only come from the center of you knowing who you are and having joy in your life. 
So how do we help that? And we know that even if we're dealing with circumstances where young people have faced a great deal of trauma, more than ever, they deserve the spaces of joy to be able to have a respite and recover from those moments in their lives. And that's what we have an obligation to do. So that racial equity framework really looks at the totality, how our mentoring movement nationally has to do the work, how we have to do the work, how programs have to do the work so that we're all contributing to a space of joy that elevates black youth voices and therefore will elevate every other voice as well. Wow, Brenda, you said so many powerful things there. I love just even how you talked about being able to be courageous enough and have the foresight to be able to respond and champion the movement in such a critical time. I think it's very easy for us all to fall prey to the system, definitely guilty um, myself of perpetuating that in certain things just by kind of going along with the day to day and not challenging that status quo. So thank you for doing that and allowing the other affiliates to benefit from tools like the racial equity framework so that we can share that with programs in our region and continue to have those conversations. We talk about this concept of how we can move the movement, right? The mentoring movement and by um, collectively doing that work, I think we have an opportunity to really make a difference So all that to say, you and I have had conversations in the past about other ways to dismantle systems, specifically around the language that we use. When we started this podcast, one of the things that rose up was just the importance of relationships, the people that really made a difference in our lives. It was from a place of pure joy, right? How we began to form these relationships. So we began to to explore that further. And we're like, we want to focus around just natural mentoring relationships that just occurred in the community by just that nature of being in the neighborhood or being in certain spaces. And we at the Mentoring Partnership in Southwestern Pennsylvania coined that natural mentoring relationship term that is everyday mentoring. So when we think about the language that we use in dismantling systems, like what what resonates for you when we start to say, okay, formal mentoring, this is what formal mentoring looks like versus everyday mentoring. What are your thoughts around that? Yeah, look, I'm an intellectual like everybody else. I'm a professional. I'm very proud of being in the sector. I want to know the academic languages to things and how we decipher things and cut data points and information. Um, But I'm also very aware that the power of language is what we utilize in order to create perception, in order to evoke emotion in order to extend love and also to perpetuate hatred, right? And when I do this work and I'm talking to my marketing person who's pretty exceptional, Hadley, we often talk about, well, who's gonna read this? Who's listening to it? Who will be impacted by this? You know, it's interesting. You talk to at-risk youth, And just the fact that I said, you talk to at-risk youth, that should have given you like a reaction, right? But if you walk in thinking I'm talking to at-risk youth, you're going to talk to that person in a certain way. You might actually call them an at-risk youth. How would you feel to be called an at-risk youth, right? 
and, and it's going to connote a reaction. And so I started to very quickly start thinking about, well, I hit all the measures at 12 years old of being an at-risk youth. If somebody said that to me, I'd probably be feeling pretty low at the end of that experience and probably wouldn't want to talk to that adult or those groups of people very much again, right? And so if that's the truth and, and we were using that language, then language matters, right? And as I went out to work in the community, they were not necessarily always open to having me help them, which is all I wanted to do. Hey, how are you working with your young people? What kind of supports can we give you? And it's because we were using language that made them feel like they were valued or important in the work that they were doing with young people. And because I'm part of that construct, much like you said, Michelle, I said, okay, guilty as charged, we're doing something wrong. So when you say something like everyday mentors, yeah, that makes sense to me. When you say something like natural mentors, yeah, that makes sense to me. Does formal or informal mentoring happen? Yeah, it does happen, right? Under the constructs of academic language. But at the end of the day, if you talk to any young person or any adult doing this and you say, who was your mentor? Have you mentored? They're not going to say, yeah, so I've been a natural mentor. Or, yeah, I'm an everyday mentor. Or, yeah, I'm a big brother, big sister mentor. Or, yeah, I'm a this. They're going to say, oh, yeah, my mentor, my mentor was that, that, that. They don't put a qualifier. We put the qualifier, right? And so I have been really big in pushing the fact that the qualifier lies in all the academia and academics that want to put qualifiers to things. But the practice, the feeling, the impact that you're trying to have is one thing. It's mentoring. That's it. And so this gift that we give in the movement is if you're going to be a mentor or a mentor or considering mentoring someone in your life, I can actually help you. There are things you can do to make the experience richer, right? And so that's the intentionality part of it versus it just being something that occurs in your in your day-to-day -day life. And I think that we have to understand something as well. Because the playing field is not even and never has been, mentoring, intentional mentoring, infusing mentoring into spaces beyond a young person's everyday life, community, and family was a response to providing them an opportunity and access to things they otherwise wouldn't have because the playing field is not even. And we cannot lose sight of that. So we cannot then denigrate all the other mentoring that happens in their life, which would have happened anyway, outside of the ones that are helping them have access and even the playing field. That's what happens in school. That's what happens at work. That's what happens in sports. That's about making sure everyone has access and it evens the playing field. But it doesn't then negate the fact that in the absence of those things, young people have access to those relationships in many other facets of their lives. So when you say everyday mentors, it makes sense to me. It's what they are interacting and interfacing with every day. But at the end of the day, it's all venturing.
So language matters to the extent that we utilize it to add a value judgment to what's before people. As caring adults, we look forward to opportunities to share our wisdom of learned experiences with young people. The Mentoring Partnership is here to support those efforts and encourage ways for you to be more intentional in those natural mentoring opportunities by offering our everyday mentoring training to groups of individuals of 10 or more. To learn more about our everyday mentoring training, please contact the Mentoring Partnership at 412 281 2535 or by emailing us at info at mentoring When you said with the racial equity framework that we often talk in deficit language with young people, like we want to like fix young people. I think when you just said mentoring is happening in some places, but we're not always recognizing that it's happening there. Hopefully we're moving toward better, but that's a lot of the language in the field too. We talk about increasing young people's social capital and networks sometimes implies that young people don't have it or like that's not there, but maybe in reality that is there, we're just recognizing certain parts of it. You're absolutely right. There is sort of this construct of it be there. And when we broaden that definition and we broaden the language, what we discover is the richness of what relationships look like in young people's lives. That is not to say that there aren't young people that don't have the richness of that reality. And for those young people, then we've got to step up our game, right? But we cannot assume that that is a broad stroke across the Black Native, Latino, Asian community, because that's not the reality, right? In the same breath, we can't say that it's a broad brush across the white community, because given a certain community, economic status, and lack of access to resources, the paradigm looks similar in many ways, right? excluding the privileges that may come, right, um, uh, with the game. But the reality is that you want it for all children. And so, and when we broaden the language, we broaden the opportunity, I think for, for our work to be able to really help adults be present, be intentional, be caring, and start to provide access to young people beyond their immediate reality. Even how you responded to meet the needs of young people in the midst of the pandemic. And as you all were shifting to a more virtual space, then being able to like recognize there's an accessibility issue and then how mentoring programs are gonna serve young people through virtual platforms if they don't have access to technology or to Wi-Fi, et cetera. And then creating access through social networks for young people to be able to expand possibilities through that access and paying homage to the caring adults that already exist despite whether we categorize or qualify as formal mentoring or everyday mentoring or natural mentoring or the many terms that we use in the field and just really respecting that mentoring can make a difference in the life of a young person by having supportive caring adults. Um, the other thing that resonates with me from our conversation is just, I love the language you use about 
fostering those relationships where young people live, learn, work, and play. It can look differently, those relationships and mentoring. I love that in thinking about it in that way, it doesn't have to be, you know, the mentor that I see on Wednesday from 12 to 1, right? So just fostering those relationships um, and creating those webs of support for young people overall, being intentional, meeting young people where they're at doing the work that we need to do to help dismantle systems and being able to challenge that, push that back ultimately so young people coming up can be successful. Given all that, Brenda, do you have any personal mentoring stories that you want to share that kind of helps bring that conversation that we had today full circle? Yeah, look, I I always consider myself super lucky and very blessed. And I go into this work knowing that not every young person who came from my neighborhood or was fortunate enough to have the the individuals that I had got the same opportunities. You know, I grew up in the army brat. When my parents divorced, I ended up in the heart of the South Bronx. My first mentor was my mom. You know, I know how to wear a stiletto heel and walk inside in cement sidewalks in Manhattan because she did it going to work every morning at a bank. And she was a professional who moved up and I watched and I observed. And so She's the first and most important mentor. But then I was fortunate enough in high school to find a history teacher who saw me, you know, who saw my brilliance, no judgment, um, who knew and saw my potential and then just helped push me and guide me. And for me to see my own sort of brilliance and potential. And then I would say to you that I wouldn't get a mentor again, probably until my professional career. And she's still one of my dearest friends and people I affectionately call her my M&M in Spanish, godmother is madrina and mentor. So I call her my madrina mentor, my M&M, Elba Cabrera. She is a walking history book. She was at the end stages of her career when I was in the beginning of mine in Girl Scouts of the USA, and someone said to me, you should talk to her. And I was a little trepidatious because I had met Latina women in the workplace that weren't so kind. And I was like, oh, I don't know about this. And she wasn't. She was one of those people who saw my talent and my brilliance, but more importantly, in my professional career, has given me access, access to people, access to ideas, access to opportunities access to my own potential in so many ways by being curious and doing all the things that now I train mentors to do. And I always have those three examples to hold up. As I continue my career, I value the relationships, relationships I have like with Michelle. They're not consistent in every day, but every time I'm connected to brilliant people, it makes me a better human being. And what mentoring has done for me is made me a total relational individual. I value relational leadership. I understand that that's what moves and motivates people to be better at who they are and what they do. And so it's all those things that they've given me. I was never in a formal lies situation. They are my everyday mentors, but it doesn't matter how many years I do this work, they hit all the notes of what it is 
that I try for adults to understand they have to do with young people when they're mentoring. So that's why I'm so clear that it's all mentoring. I'm so clear that you have opportunities to, as a young person, generate social capital and to your point, webs of individuals. And I think what happens when we try to even the playing field and be intentional about the mentoring relationships available to young people so that they have access. What we also inadvertently do is empower young people to continue to build that web. And that's why we can't put an adjective in front of mentoring because then we would almost negate and devalue what we're teaching them to do, which is to go seek other individuals in their life to continue to build and prosper. And by the way, to go do the same for others, which is the residual impact of every young person that's mentored is that they aspire to mentor other people. And that doesn't always have to happen because you were in a program. It just happened. And we have to celebrate that um, because that is the magic of being in this work and in this movement. Stay inspired. Hi, my name is Sophia, and I am the training and engagement manager at the Mentoring Partnership. As the training and engagement manager, I help to support the training needs of mentors and mentees in our region. As Mentor Chat listeners, you may have heard about the new resource, Becoming a Better Mentor Guide, Strategies to Be There for Young People. If you haven't, I encourage you to go back and listen to episode two of this season's podcast. As part of a new and exciting engagement effort, I'll be offering monthly virtual coffee chats centered around each topic in the guide. As a follow-up to this particular episode of Mentor Chat, we will be joined with our peers from New York to talk about the importance of making room for fun and play. In listening to Brenda Jimenez, CEO of Mentor New York, talk about the importance of creating spaces of joy, there is no better time than now to dive into this chapter of Becoming a Better Mentor Guide. As noted in this publication, play is important in a mentoring relationship and stemming off of what Brenda talked about in her episode, playful interactions can form bridges that transcend differences and mistrust. I hope that you will join me and my peers from New York on Friday, May 20th at 1030 a.m. to talk more about how you are prioritizing play in your mentoring relationships. If you need ideas, well, Come on in, because we plan to have those too. You can find out how to register at mentoringpittsburgh.org. And since this is a coffee hour, make sure that you grab your coffee, tea, or any beverage of choice and a friend and join in on the chat. Thanks for joining. And don't forget to rate, mentor, chat, and subscribe. We hope you enjoyed the conversation and maybe learned something new. Make sure to tune back in for our season three wrap up episode coming up in a couple weeks. Mentor Chat is written, produced, and hosted by Michelle Thomas and Ashley Wyland with the mentoring partnership of Southwestern Pennsylvania. 
Our music is Cheery Monday by Kevin MacLeod. Special thank yous to Kristen Allen and the Mentoring Partnership team. Thank you to Brenda Jimenez. For more information about us and mentoring, take a look at this episode's show notes and visit the Mentoring Partnerships website at www.mentoringpittsburgh.org. Thank you.